ranger's hat and shovel and a pair of dungarees. You will find him in the forest, always sniffing at the breeze. People stop and pay attention when he tells them to beware, because everybody knows that he's the fire preventing bear. Smokey the Bear, Smokey the Bear. Hey there, adults. Welcome to another episode of the A is for Adulthood podcast. Today we're talking about the letter N once more, but this time N stands for National Parks. Did you know that we currently have 60 national parks in the United States? It was 59 up until a couple months ago, and then the St. Louis Arch was made into a national park. Now, I would have been pissed off had it not been by the random luck of my uh, drive on Route 66 this past fall that I ended up seeing and visiting the arch. I was actually a brat and didn't want to go to it, but my mother ended up somehow forcing me to go, and I ended up enjoying it kind of in the end. Uh, I guess mothers continue to know best most of the time. Anyways, um, I made it my goal a couple years ago that I would visit all 60 parks in my lifetime. I'm currently 23 parks down and a little obsessed with all things national parks. So why don't we start at the beginning and learn how these parks came to be. Courtesy of ABC News, here is a brief history of the National Park Service. can camp upon his doorstep and he'll make you feel It began with just one park in 1872. Nature had endowed Yellowstone with a strange, savage beauty. But since then, the United States National Park System has grown tremendously. 400 areas now, covering 84 million acres across all 50 states. An incredible success story, often called America's greatest idea. But how did it all come about? find out in a brief history of the National Park System. The concept of a national park is largely credited to George Catlin, an American painter who in 1832 traveled across the Great Plains to document disappearing Native American tribes. By some great protecting policy of government, Caitlin argued for, a magnificent park, a nation's park containing man and beast in all the wildness and freshness of their nature's beauty. A few decades later, in 1872, Catlin's dream came true when a natural wonderland spanning Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho became the world's first official national park. They called it Yellowstone. Here is one of the most unspoiled regions on Earth. But visitors must be prepared for roadblocks, like 500-pound bears. We'll just keep the car windows rolled up, thank you. Further west in California's Yosemite Valley, a controversy was brewing. While the area had been deeded to the state in 1864, with portions belonging to the federal government, the naturalist John Muir believed the state-managed areas were being exploited and lobbied Congress for it to become a national park under full federal control. In 1903, Muir convinced President Theodore Roosevelt to join him on a camping trip in Yosemite. And three years later, the park was under full federal control. By 1906, Congress helped expand the park system by passing the Antiquities Act, which granted the president the authority to set aside historic landmarks that already existed on public lands. Roosevelt took swift action, proclaiming Wyoming's Devil's Tower as the first national monument that year and establishing a tradition that would continue today. For more than 40 years, the nation's parks were supervised at different times by the departments of war, agriculture, and the interior. But President Woodrow Wilson sought to clear the bureaucratic mess and created the National Park Service on August 25, 1916. 
Then by 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt further streamlined the agency with Executive Order 6166. It consolidated all the national parks, monuments, memorials, and cemeteries into a single national park system. Three decades later, President Johnson ushered in a new era of America's conservation, emphasizing a parks for the people ideology that sought more publicly accessible parks in urban areas. This is a very happy and historic occasion for all who love the great American outdoors. And since then, the list of national parks has grown steadily. California has the most national parks with nine, while Alaska's Wrangell-St. Elias National Park is by far the largest. Can you even imagine America without its national parks? From the rivers of grass in the Everglades to the volcanoes of Hawaii, this unique system reflects how far Americans have come in their appreciation for the natural world. It's not lost on me when it comes to national parks that I'm really lucky to live here in California. Now, I didn't have a childhood that was comprised of camping trips and national park adventures. I'm not gonna lie, we just weren't the camping sort of family. But through school, I was exposed to Yosemite, and later in life, I was fortunate enough to have the means, interest, and transportation to go visit national parks. But on the flip side, there are many people who don't even live in proximity to a national park, let alone have means of getting to one. Or perhaps day-to-day -day life just doesn't allow for one to get away to nature. So national parks might very well be a foreign concept to many. So if you haven't been to a national park or even thought about going to one, the next best way to explore a national park is through books. And there's one book in particular that I'd like to talk about today. It's called Ranger Confidential. This book is written by former park ranger Andrea Langford and it gives an inside look into the lives and experiences of rangers from within the parks. Here's an excerpt from the back of the book. For 12 years, Andrea Lankford lived in some of the biggest, most impressive national parks in the world, working as a ranger, a job she loved. She chaperoned baby sea turtles on their journey to sea. She pursued bad guys on her galloping patrol horse. She jumped into rescue helicopters bound for the heart of the Grand Canyon. She won arguments with bears, she slept with a few too many rattlesnakes. After reading the book, I contacted Andrea and invited her for a chat, and she was gracious enough to accept. So here's my chat with former National Park Ranger, Andrea Langford. Thank you, actually, for uh, writing Ranger Confidential. And I say that because the book, and I'm sure a lot of other people have said this to you as well, but it gave me a new understanding of national parks and also just what it means to be a ranger. To jump right in, on page 21 of your book, you state the park ranger credo of protect the park from the people, the people from the park, and the people from themselves. Just how true is that statement? It's extremely true. And and it's actually reflective of the, the, the torn nature of that, where you're on a tightrope trying to protect the, all these different things in the park, who are sometimes at cross purposes. That is also reflective of the organic act that created the National Park Service, which the goal is to protect the park, but also provide for the enjoyment of for future generations. So it, it's kind of a thin green line, as some people say, that the rangers must, must walk to do their jobs. Do you find that one of those three aspects and that credo is more difficult than the other? 
I would say protect the people from the park was the most difficult for me. Definitely at the Grand Canyon that challenged me on a daily basis. You had so many great stories in your book, but is there a story that really comes to mind when you think of protecting um, people from the park? Yeah, just the situation at the Grand Canyon where it's so uh, huge and massive and beautiful and but it's also very deadly and people are drawn to hike down in the canyon, but they get trapped in a situation that's hard for them to get out. Sometimes it kills them, the heat or the ruggedness of the park. And sometimes that, but they are often naive. And so as a park ranger, you're trying to give them advice on how to hike the park safely. And they, sometimes they roll their eyes at you. They don't, they believe you're over-exaggerating the dangers. That's well, that's what I was going to say to you. I'm sure they're like, mm-hmm, okay, whatever, I'm fine. I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> right. think, oh, oh, if I've done a hike or two in my life, I can do this. <laughs> yeah, it's all downhill, right? And <laughs> right. we would put up signs with skull and crossbones, that, you know, be warned, this is deadly. People would go and take pictures of themselves grinning and laughing next to that sign. And unfortunately, there is a case where the body was found and they developed the film and the camera and there was a photo of him grinning in front of that sign. Oh, gosh, the irony there. Um, In your book, you talk about um, also the people who were inspired by the film, like Thelma and Louise, who either attempt or succeed to uh, take their lives in the Grand Canyon by going over the edge. Did you ever have to personally deal with people trying to attempt the Thelma and Louise sort of thing? I personally didn't deal with a car over the edge, but I did retrieve bodies of people who had leaped off the edge, suicidal people. Um, But one of the people I write about, Ranger Chris Fors, he dealt with some people who drove off the edge. It's weird that I'd never heard about that. You always hear about the Golden Gate Bridge. It's kind of being the mecca for where people will go to to do that stuff. But I didn't realize that the Grand Canyon was also a big place for that. I mean, how often, If I don't know if you know, but how often was that sort of thing happening? Just anecdotally speaking, it seemed like at least once a month we might get a call for be on the lookout of a suicidal subject coming to the Grand Canyon. Um, Easily it could be once a month you would get that sort of call. Now, some of those people didn't make it. You know, you never encountered them. Mm -hmm. But there's two or three at least a year that attempt suicide. There was even one individual, uh, really horrifying, he bought a helicopter trip across the Grand Canyon and leaped out of the helicopter when it ran o- when it flew over. Kind of try to change gears a little bit away from the yeah. suicidal aspect <laughs> of it. <laughs> the just, bleakness, right, just yeah. Get, um, how would you define exactly what a, what is a national park to you? A national park to me is it's a church and a temple, but it's also a playground. And so, again, we get in that rub, that friction between uh, treating something as a pristine thing, but also enjoying it. So, yeah, I love to be uh, reflective and quiet and respectful, but I also see national parks as a place to hike and play and kayak, um, enjoy campfires and, and socialize with people. Did you have a relationship with national parks when you were a kid? Yes, I went, I believe I was about six or seven when I first started visiting Great Smokies National Park. And to me, that park was about bears and blueberries. You know, you always want to see a bear and we love to pick blueberries. Also, my dad took me to visit one of the last uh, remaining residents in Elkmont in Great Smoky Mountains. And it was a blind beekeeper. They called him Uncle Lim. 
And I just remember being very impressed with him. He would tell us stories of what it was like to be a mountain man in the Great Smoky Mountains. So national parks are also a place for living history. Oh, wow. So how do we go from, you know, you're you're the six-year-old who visits their first national park to actually becoming a ranger? Because from what I understood in your book, that didn't seem like something you consciously were thinking about as you were growing up. No, it wasn't. I, you know, I loved animals. I thought this is an old show. You might not remember it, but I wanted to be uh, on the show Wild Kingdom with these, you know, safari type dudes that would go uh, manhandle wildlife. And I ended up going into forestry school and got my degree in forestry, but I was having a hard time getting a job. So a boyfriend recommended that I go to a ranger school to learn how to be a law enforcement ranger. I didn't have anything else better to do. And once I did that, I got a job at Cape Hatteras and fell in love with the work right away. So stepping back, what, so when you were studying forestry, what exact, what kind of jobs could you get? Cause you said it was hard to get a job. Yeah. Forestry, there's timber companies, which a woman really didn't have a good chance of getting one of those jobs, but that was, you could work for private industry. The United States Forest Service hires foresters, you know, to manage. Uh, There was also urban forestry where you could, you know, treat trees in urban environments and parks. Um, So I was thinking about stuff like that, but, you know, my goals weren't clear. I was somewhat naive about, you know, what the jobs in the outdoors actually entail. But mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to work outdoors. And um, when you said you studied to be a law enforcement ranger, is that correct? Yes. You know, that surprised me because I've always just heard, you know, it's a ranger. And my understanding was very naive. You know, I'm thinking of the person who takes your money at the kiosk, somebody who does like a night program about the stars, the very basic stuff. I didn't realize how many different types of rangers there actually were and the kind of jobs you could have. So when you, I mean, did you know that as soon as you started studying law enforcement, that there were so many different types of rangers and jobs that could be done? I did have an idea because I did a summer job as a Tennessee state park ranger and I was the naturalist ranger. So I would do the talks and get out snakes and teach children about snakes and take people on nature hikes. But my superior was a law enforcement ranger. And so I I knew then right away that there were different types of rangers. And so then when I had the chance to go to law enforcement school, it sounded exciting and interesting. And, the you know, we call them protection rangers um, from that credo. They also you're, do search and rescue, firefighting, and EMS. So it, it was all the good stuff in one job. Wow. What would you say is the most common misconception that people have about park rangers? That their job is easy and that it's the best job in the world. Um, Sometimes it is the best job in the world, but sometimes it's the worst job in the world. Uh, They also believe that, uh, that the park leaders are benign and, you know, that there's no, no such thing as corruption within the National Park Service that park rangers would have to deal with. So which, going back to the national parks, I want to ask, which national park, in your opinion, do you think is the most dangerous? In my opinion, it would be the Grand Canyon. Um, And I say the Grand Canyon is my favorite national park, but I have a love-hate relationship with it um, because it is so dangerous. It's just very deceiving and 
it's just really unforgiving park when you hike in it. You have to prepare yourself. The Native Americans believe that you need to be spiritually prepared before you go into the Grand Canyon. And so I think we should listen to their advice and prepare ourselves spiritually and mentally before going into that park. And would you say that the cause of the danger is pretty well-rounded, or do you find that it's more because of the humans or more because of the terrain? The, the terrain is huge. The terrain and the weather, the heat in the summer is quite deadly or can be. Also, in the winter, you have ice and snow on the trail. You've got rock slides, rock falls. You have flash flooding. You have lightning strikes. Um, wildlife is rarely a problem at the Grand Canyon, but you do have a deadly scorpion there. And uh, people want to swim in the river. The Colorado River is a huge danger. There's just there's something that can kill you everywhere you look. Do you have any stories that come to mind when you think of danger in the Grand Canyon? Yeah, uh the flash floods, uh, you know, I participated in several uh, body recoveries with people that got washed away in the flash floods. And so that's something to always be aware of, in, especially in desert canyons. Uh, you might not see that it's raining and storming upstream from the canyon that you're hiking in. So it's something that can sneak up on people. Oh, wow. How would you explain what it means to be a park ranger? You know, whether it's the job duties, responsibilities, hours, however you would explain it. It's a calling. It's not something you would necessarily do for the money. You would do it for the love of it. The ranger credo, protect the people from the park, the park from the people, and the people from themselves. It, it's, it's something you eat, sleep, and dream about. And those are the kind of people that are drawn to being a park ranger. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the stamina to, uh, one, get the job to begin with, and two, live in the living conditions and, and make your sacrifices with your family. Um, so, yeah, it's a calling. If you try to explain what a, I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, typical day as a ranger was like, how would you describe that? Well, let's go to Yosemite. When I was a patrol ranger in Yosemite Valley and, and, and starting the night shift at 3 p.m., I would go to a briefing where the day shift would tell us all the things they dealt with and what we needed to look into during our shift. Then we would separate and go in our patrol vehicles and check our shotguns and our equipment and start driving the valley. Right away, you might get a call for a hiker that's been overdue or someone who's fallen. And then everything would stop and you would go with a rescue team to go help that person. Or you may get a call that there's a fight breaking out where people have been drinking in the campground and you need to separate people and, and possibly arrest someone who's overly intoxicated or done something violent. And then at night, you might have a motorcycle accident you have to respond to. It could be a fatality and you're loading people into the ambulance and take them to the park clinic so that they can be treated. And you might, if you're lucky, you might get off around 1 a.m., go home, have a drink with your buddies that are also getting off of work, and then go to sleep and wake up and start all over again. Wow. And in your book, it's, it's, uh, it seemed like there'd be plenty of stories where you wouldn't even get a full night's sleep. You'd be woken up two or three hours later because of something else. I mean, were you basically on call? 
Yes, you live in the park, and you're often on call 24-7. Some, uh, there were times I worked 30 days straight without a day off, many of those days being 16-hour days. I did many all-nighters, especially at the Grand Canyon, because uh, there was just so much happening there in the 90s. Uh, we would At Yosemite, we'd call it seeing a Yosemite sunrise, because you would see the sunrise because you didn't get to sleep that night. You stayed up all night. With no sleep, how do you guys keep going and stay so alert when you're rescuing people? Well, it's interesting, you know, that uh, over time, sleep deprivation can be huge. I mean, I still face that as a nurse. I work as a nurse now. But when when you get the call, your adrenaline is going and you're focusing on what you're doing, not the fact that you're not asleep. Um, Mm -hmm. So for at least one day, you'll be all right. But after that, it, it... I think it impacts us. You know, we would get testy with each other. Um, you know, I tell stories of rangers throwing flashlights across parking lots. Uh, I would get testy with park visitors. You know, they're asking me for mundane things when I'm tired. and They have no appreciation of, you know, that I'm sleep deprived and just dealt with something horrible. And they want to complain about some minor issue. Which national parks have you worked at? I started at Cape Hatteras National Seashore, then I went to Zion National Park in Utah, Yosemite in California, and Grand Canyon in Arizona are the four primary ones. And which park did you spend the most time in? Grand Canyon. I was there five years. Uh, Zion, I was there four years. So they, those would, those two would be close. Okay, I mean, that's that's a long time. And how, I mean, how does the lifestyle of a park ranger really affect your personal life? Well, in the beginning, it, it's very, it's fun. You're, you're young, you're with these like-minded individuals. Um, you know, you're dating people, you're going out and hiking together and having adventures together, very social. Um, then later, as you get older and your responsibilities increase, it, you know, it, it's a little, you're a little less naive about the bureaucracies um, and sometimes you're a little more impatient about maybe your living conditions and the sacrifices you're making, you know, to live in a national park. Were you always having to share living quarters? When I was seasonal, yes. Once I got permanent uh, full-time. I would get my own housing, but often I had to wait. Uh, for six months, I lived in a old renovated hospital room at the Grand Canyon. Oh, wow. Yeah, my nightstand was, you know, those bedside stands that they uh-huh. use in a hospital. Well, and then what would be like the upgrade? So like if you really got your own standard housing, I mean, was it like an apartment or were you just like in a little studio? At Yosemite, I had a little studio, and then I moved into a one-bedroom apartment. And at Grand Canyon, I had a two-bedroom historic cabin. Um, the yard is small. It's cute, but it's small. It's, it'd be a hard place to raise a family. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there were good, you know, it was just less than a quarter mile from the rim of the Grand Canyon. It didn't have a great view, but you were easy walk to go see the Grand Canyon. And I'd imagine that your life was probably primarily all just focused within the national park system. So your friends or whoever you're dating, you know, was it hard to reconnect with your friends and your family that were outside of the national park? 
Yeah, that's very perspe- uh, uh, perceptive of you. It, it is like a little bit of a fishbowl existence. Um, that's your whole world. You know, you celebrate holidays with the people in the park, um, and there are good aspects to that. But there are also bad aspects to that. If you're having trouble at work, everybody knows about it. You know, you can't get away yeah, that's from your work say. environment. <laughs> yeah, if you have a bad boss, there's no <laughs> escaping that one for a weekend. Yes, exactly. It it meshes your social environment with your work environment is is really entrenched, and there can be good and bad in that. You had mentioned um, how sometimes you'd be dealing with something hard, and then you'd have you know visitors who were asking you stupid questions or just not understanding what you had been dealing with. When you were dealing with hard things, especially grim things like death and fatalities, how did you how did you deal? How did you cope? Well, I was younger then, and so I would shut down my emotions. You know, I would recognize that something was really sad and horrible or scary, but I would just shut it down and deal deal with it. Um, and to me, you, you can do that for a little while, but over time, that's not the best coping mechanism. And also, we would drink and party a lot. You know, we were off-duty. We would just have these crazy parties where we would be drinking a lot. Now I realize now that that was a way to cope mm-hmm, um, with course. a lot of the stresses we were doing. Um, now that I'm older, you know, I'm a nurse. I still deal with tragedy, but I'm able to be present. Um, it, I have better coping skills now than I did then. I'd imagine, as with you know, many careers, the ratio of men to women is often a bit off. And you touched on it briefly in your book, but what was it like to be one of the few females working as a ranger in a national park? There were times that it was fun. I do enjoy working with men. You know, I'm a tomboy, and and so there was a lot of times I thought it was fun, and a lot of the men I worked with were awesome, wonderful guys. But the Park Service overall has a bit of a sexist mentality, uh, back then, and they still do today, and that began to wear on me over time. You were constantly being, your competence was co- constantly being questioned just because of your gender, and, and that was just something that annoyed me and rubbed me the wrong way, and I, I would tend to fight fire with fire um, if men did something like one time we were getting ready to do a rescue training and one of the male rangers made a motion like he was going to show me his penis. And I said, whoa, wait a minute, let me get a microscope. And all the <laughs> other men laughed. <laughs> and so, he, you know, it, it didn't, didn't intimidate me. But, you know, it, you really shouldn't have to do that too much. There's, there's joking, but then sometimes it gets uh, hostile. Mm-hmm. Did you find that there was a camaraderie, um, a stronger relation among the women that were working there with you? My experience with the women was strong, a real strong camaraderie uh, with the women I worked with. Uh, My experience, we weren't competitive with each other. We tried to support each other. And so I had a really positive experience with the women I worked with. Oh, that's nice. Because I feel bad when I say stuff like this, but sometimes... You'd think we would help each other, but sometimes it does get really competitive out there amongst women. Yes, and I think it's somewhat understandable in the sense that they, it, it, when you're in a really tough, toxic environment, you, some people, their coping mechanism is to do what they have to do to survive. Mm-hmm. 
and it is it is to support the winner, quote unquote. Um, that's what they'll do. Um, my, I'm a little bit more of a rebel personality. I would tend to uh, verbalize complaints uh, versus trying to fit in. But you know, I think that made things difficult for me. Do you have any stories that come to mind when you think of protecting a national park from humans? Yeah, humans. Uh, a lot of the damages that I saw humans do, uh, in, in some ways, I begin to see that as minor. But one of the worst ones is some that happened at Cape Hatteras, where I heard a report that some men had tied a sea turtle to the back of their truck and dragged the sea turtle down the beach and the sea turtle was killed. And that infuriated me. And I wow. so badly wanted to catch them. So every time I saw a white pickup truck, I would pull it over and, and, you know, try to interrogate the person to see if they were potentially the guys who had done it. Jeez. And just how much jurisdiction do rangers have within a national park? It does vary. And Yosemite, it's exclusive jurisdiction. So what that means is that we, the rangers are in charge of enforcing all the laws in Yosemite. And oh, wow. it, you could also, yeah, so we were it. We were the show. So Yosemite um, was, was its corner. own town then? Yes, it had its own jail. It has its own courthouse. It had a clinic that used to be a hospital. Um, so it is definitely like a small hamlet town, like a ski town type of environment. And you, you're the show. You're the police. You're the ambulance. You're the fire response. Uh, at some other parks of proprietary jurisdiction, often in the East Coast, that's the case, and they rely heavily on the county sheriffs to help with the law enforcement in those parks. Got you. But going to back to Yosemite, like let's say I got in really big trouble and I got put in jail, do I <laughs> then do I go through that court system and be held in the Yosemite jail, or do I event, like like how does that work? Yeah, let's say you you were guilty of DUI. I busted you for DUI at Yosemite. I mm -hmm. would arrest you and take you to the Yosemite jail where you'd be booked and fingerprinted and placed in a cell um, until you sobered up. Then you might be released the next day on bond. And then you would appear in court there in Yosemite and see a federal magistrate. Uh, Grand Canyon, although it was concurrent jurisdiction, it was very similar. There was a court in the park, but if you were arrested, we had to take you down to Flagstaff, which was an hour and a half drive away for the Rangers. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, the, the jail runs, I tell a story of a jail run with Ranger Chris Fours in my book, and, and we, neither one of us had any sleep, and we had breakfast there in Flagstaff after dropping off um, someone he had arrested who didn't like us very much. What is it that you attend when you first became a ranger? Well, I've got a seasonal ranger law enforcement academy. I had done that, and I had my degree in forestry. And then not long after I started working, I got an EMT certification so that I was a medic. Eventually, I became a park medic, which is very close to being a paramedic. Also, I had wildland fire training, structural fire training, lots of search and rescue and wilderness medicine training. I have scores of certificates of all the types of training that I got. Wow. So you would you say you probably could have uh, done almost any ranger job at a national park? Yeah, that 
yeah, there's probably something I couldn't do, but yeah, most of it, you know, I did not, one thing I never did, I just, I get a little bit motion sick and I call it the the dopes on the rope. It's the rangers that are dangling off of lines under a helicopter to do search and rescue. And I saw one where the ranger was just spinning in the air and I just knew I would get sick and hurl. So I never did that. So that was one of the duties I never got the training to do. I don't blame you on that one. (laughs) (laughs) What lifelong skills and lessons from your days as a ranger have crossed over into your day-to-day life? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad for that experience, even though it was hard on a lot of levels. You know, now I'm better at setting boundaries as far as making sure I get enough sleep, for example. Um, Also, all the wilderness skills i'm so happy to have all those skills so i feel very comfortable and confident hiking kayaking alone in the woods and i feel comfortable that if i meet anybody that's uh, potentially dangerous i would know how to handle it you know i know what to avoid and and what to worry about what not to worry about so i'm very happy to have that confidence when i'm in the outdoors and then also the fact that you are now a, a nurse, it seems like you obviously took a lot of your skills from your time as a ranger over into that job. Yes, I agree. Um, you know, when a patient's having a medical emergency, that's another thing that came from my ranger experience. I, you know, I'm ready for that. I've, I've seen, uh, dealt with, you know, scary injuries and other medical emergencies. So I, I can go into a mode of, and help that person and make decisions and act um, to save their life if I need to. So you're a ranger for 12 years. Why did you decide to retire? I got burned out. I'm a classic case of burnout. <laughs> when I retired, I was I felt overworked. I was disillusioned. Um, I had dealt with m- more tragedies and body recoveries and I can count uh, the part started to scare me a little bit I was worried about my employees were going to get killed in the line of duty and then I was going to have to call someone's parent I, you know I just and then the sexism was just annoying me too much and I'd verbalized that to management and I, I wasn't happy with the way they responded so I was ready to leave I after 12 years, that was enough for me, and it was the right decision for me. You know, I've tried over the past couple of years to get several active rangers to try to chat with me on my podcast, but they always would have to back out out of fear. I think that they thought they were going to get in trouble. You know, maybe it was different, of course, because you were retired, but what what made it possible for you to write this book and share your stories? Well, one being retired, I was was somewhat comfortable talking to the media when I was a ranger, but today my understanding is it's even more, they're even more afraid to talk outside of, of what's acceptable and that they have to get approval from the public information officer. So, but when I, once I retired, I, you know, I would tell people that I used to be a park ranger and they would go, oh, what a great job. How fun is that? And I just thought, well, it's a lot more complicated. And I was just driven to tell the side of the story that the job could be scary and sad and hard and frustrating and disillusioning. And this was the case, not only for me, but many of my friends, peers, and employees. 
So I wanted to tell their story as well. It's so I was driven to write that book to get that story out there. What inspired you to all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to finally do this? I, ha- I had written two guidebooks. I had pu- written and published two guidebooks about uh, trails in Arizona. And so I knew I could write a book and I just had that undercurrent drive. And uh, Mary Littell Henson and Chris Force, two of the rangers that I wrote about, they agreed to let me write about them. And so once they were brave enough to do that, I was determined to write this book. It took me 10 years to write it. Oh, wow. What was the process like of collecting these stories? I would do a lot of interviews. I would uh, go and visit Mary and Chris and uh, record some of their interviews. Some of them were over the phone. I would get, I would go to the parks and get access to the reports of these incidents, which now I bet I would not be able to get that same kind of access that I got back Did they know what you were doing when you were trying to get access? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, they totally knew. But these were people I had worked with, and so they were supportive. Mm -hmm. But also it was a different time then. Uh, I think the Park Service is a lot more reticent with the media now than they used to be. But they were, by um, colleagues that were still working with the agency, were very helpful when I was researching the book. And I would visit areas. Also, I write about Kel Schaefer, who worked for me, and I met with his parents, and they agreed to let me write about their son. And I spent a week with them learning more about Kel and his personality. Um, so, and then there's a lot of time where you're just in a room plunking away at the computer. What was the reception by the park service when this book came out? Uh, we were nervous. Um, Mary in particular, I know she was still working for the park service. And so we were very nervous. Uh, we were worried that would they try to fire her once the book came out? Um, I was nervous that people wouldn't be sympathetic, that they didn't want their fantasy image of, of what a ranger is to, to be changed. But the overwhelmingly, the response was positive. People got it. And they often read the book and say now they have more appreciation for what rangers do. What's one of your favorite stories in the book? Not to put you on the spot, but do you have a particular favorite story that you could uh, share with the people listening? I think one of my favorite stories that comes to mind is when Mary Littell Henson uh, wormed her way into being one of the first female rangers to go over the edge off the El Capitan in a rescue. And it just, to me, it's like a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer story where the guys didn't want to let her play in the ranger games. But because the A-team all got stuck in a snowstorm in another section of the park, they had to use Mary to go over the edge to rescue some male climbers. And when she got down to the male climbers, they were stunned that it was a woman who had come down the rope to rescue them. And it's a good, happy ending. She does a great job and uh, proved herself capable of her herself and also women mm-hmm. capable of doing these high angle rescues in Yosemite national park. Do you still visit national parks? I do, but I tend to avoid them. They're awfully busy, and they're more busy now than even when they were when I worked there. And 
So I, if I go to a national park, I try to find an off-season time um, or a section of the park that's not heavily visited. I tend to visit U.S. Forest Service areas more because mm-hmm. they're, they tend to be not as busy as national parks. And when you do happen to go to a national park in the off-season, is it a weird experience to kind of be the visitor, but you're also an insider? Um, it was really weird at first. I used to feel like my blood pressure would go up every time I entered the gate of a national park. Um, and I would look at people and they wouldn't look prepared and I would worry about them. Mm-hmm. But now not so much. It's more, I get amused when I see a young ranger and, um, I can sort of picture what their life might be like. What would you say is one of the most common misconceptions that people have about national parks? I, I think it's that they're, um, they're 100% safe. Um, they're, they're just naive and feel like they, they don't need to worry that they don't understand that the park's a dynamic place where nature is in charge and, um, it's pays to be alert and to prepare yourself before going into such an environment. Well, thank you, Andrea, so much for taking a little bit of your time to chat with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about being a ranger that, um, you feel maybe I didn't cover? Well, I just say when you go to a national park and you see a park ranger, thank them for what they're doing, and they'll appreciate that. You'll make their day a little bit better. Well, thank you, Andrea. You bet. Thank you. I've just gotten off the Gold Line, which is one of the train routes here in Los Angeles. I took it from Pasadena to downtown LA, and I'm getting off at Union Station. And I'm walking across the street to El Pueblo de Los Angeles. It's essentially a festive Mexican marketplace full of things to buy, Mexican food, margaritas, mariachi music, um, all that jazz. But In the midst of all this Mexican culture, there's this organization called Gateway to Nature that has has set up shop and has a building here. And I discovered it randomly a couple weeks ago, and I wandered in and it was selling National Park merchandise, um, had stations for learning about the national parks. I thought it was cool, but I was also scratching my head going, why is this here? This seems the most unlikely of all places to be, but perhaps that's why it's here. my guess, and I'm going to take a guess here, is that, and let me say, as a white person, I will be the first to admit that when you go to a national park, 90%, if not more, of all visitors and employees are white. Diversity is not really a thing in the national park system. So I'm wondering and guessing that they're here to try to expose it to a new culture, to open it up to more communities, and perhaps get more people interested in out. 
Uh, so that's my guess, and we're going to head on over to Gateway to Nature to see if my guess is correct and uh, just what they're up to and what they're all about here in Little Mexico, as I'll call it, in downtown L.A. So thanks, Jim. Thanks for making some time. My pleasure. So I will tell you, I I heard about Gateway to Nature a little while ago, but didn't quite understand what it was. And then I, I'd say I happened upon it a couple weekends ago, came in, saw it was a store. Yeah. I'm a sucker for National Park stuff, even though I owned most of the stuff already. I was like, ah, oh, I didn't really find anything new. But now I'm in here, and I don't see a store. So what is the changeover? What are you guys now about? Well, in a sense, we're actually returning to the original mission of the Gateway. So when the Gateway was conceived, the idea was to create an urban center that could connect people in the neighborhoods around Los Angeles, and, and particularly in the, the downtown areas, with all of the public land around them. Because, uh, you know, it, it's not just a question of, you know, pointing at a, at a mountain peak and saying, hey, you know, that's a great place, you should go visit there. But there's cultural barriers, economic barriers, transportation well, exactly, barriers, all of these things. Because we're right here in the middle of like, you know, a celebration of Mexican culture, if you try yeah, to call it. Yeah. This stands out. I'm like, why? You know, the first thing I thought it was, why is Gateway to Nature here of all places? But then the first thing that occurred to me is somebody who visits the National Park and somebody who's white, I'll be the first person to say 90%, if not more, of everybody that visits the parks and works at the parks is white. There's not a lot of diversity. So is part of the reason that it's here because you're trying to open up that diversity? Yeah, and it's, it's not just, uh, you know, the, the gateway to nature either. I mean, we actually have uh, National Park Service rangers right next door that work in the L.A. community. Uh, we have United States Forest Service rangers uh, right across the plaza that are doing the same thing. And, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the demographics of the group that works here mm -hmm. really reflects the diversity of the community. I mean, in, in this environment, I'm the minority. Uh, and it's a an, it's an interesting experience for me, but I think it's also really telling when you look at the leadership in public lands, mm -hmm. and that it is predominantly male, predominantly white, predominantly older, um, and that doesn't necessarily reflect the demographics of the the park goer today, and it certainly doesn't reflect the demographics of where you know the National Park Service is trying to go. So, a big reason that this center exists, a big reason that you know we have rangers right next door, is that NPS itself is trying to really connect with the urban populace where people are and to both establish parks that celebrate historical areas closer into cities and a lot of outreach to try to engage with people in urban environments and to show them you know the path to the park as it were what do you happen to hear from people that live in urban environments here in downtown la you talk to them about a national park are there kids or other people that are just like what yeah, I, I, I mean, and, and it's it's really a tragedy, you know, in that this thing that, that a lot of us have had the opportunity to really enjoy mm -hmm. in some way is is not just unobtainable, but it's a foreign concept. It's something that, you know, what there, there's land that, that, that I own, you know, and a lot of people look around and they see the mountains in, in L.A. and they think that that's Hollywood and that's where all the movie stars live Those and they the don't realize homes, that right? that's yeah. public land. And you know, there, there are a lot of barriers to getting into the, the parks. As, as Micah mentioned, you know, you have to drive to a lot of them. Mm -hmm. and if you don't have a car, what do you do? 
Uh, there's also a lot of cultural um, differences, particularly around the relationship between family and uh, recreation that are very different in different cultures. So, you know, a lot of us think of nature as a place where you go to be by yourself, to be alone, to be at one with nature. Uh, and that's not necessarily the same as, you know, families that want to go and use this as an opportunity where maybe you have eight or 10 or 20 people all wanting to go and enjoy nature together. And it's not that any one of those is right or wrong. And there's, there's actually a, a lot of, uh, there's some fascinating research that's being done right now as to how the very structure of recreation in a lot of our public lands is inherently biased. And it's based on some very outmoded notions of what people want to do. And so there's a lot of emphasis in the administration of public lands in looking at mixed use and how can you create uh, the opportunity for different kinds of recreation without causing conflict uh, between them. I mean, if you're sitting there trying to be at one with nature and there's a, a family having a barbecue next door, that's, mm -hmm. you know, th there's some conflict there. So I think that there's there's really a growing recognition that there, that the, the opportunities in the public lands needs to reflect the diversity of the populace that they serve. And as the populace it is both getting more, uh, you know, um, you have to edit this, I'm blanking on the word. It's fine. <laughs> uh, so the populace is getting more diverse itself, but there's also like a lot of recognition of new kinds of, of, of people. Like we never talked about getting millennials into the parks before. And suddenly we're saying, oh, there's this group that is, and we can identify them. And, uh, so I think there's, there's really just a recognition that the parks need to be universal. What kind of efforts is Gateway to Nature making to help with those? Well, so we actually are, uh, because we're a nonprofit and we work with a variety of different government agencies, we're able to kind of, the best way I can put it is to oil the machine, to help different pockets of resource connect with different pockets of need. So we are able to, uh, for example, help an agency that's trying to uh, attract uh, you know, urban youth into the park connect funding resources that they might have with specific neighborhoods that, that have a oh, need gotcha. to get kids out. So we do programs where, where we'll run buses of kids from a neighborhood in LA out to Santa Monica uh, for the day. Uh, we're actually doing some really exciting stuff now with uh, both homeless uh, in the, oh, the really? area around here. Yeah, there's a- How there's does a, that work? Well, there's, so there's a program that the, the city of LA is, is launching where they're actually housing some of the, the homeless here mm -hmm. in El Pueblo. Oh, wow. And there's an effort to try to not just house them, which is a, mm -hmm. a good step, but it's just a, a Band-Aid on, on, on an actual problem, but to actually get them into uh, jobs where they can get training, get, get experience, even ultimately get into, uh, from, from our perspective, what we're trying to work on is how can we get them into places in public lands where there are, um, room and board included in jobs. Mm -hmm. That's so amazing. So like, you know, being able to take somebody literally from being homeless on the street in front of the center to where they have a job in, in the parks, in the public lands, and are paying taxes, that's a transformation. And mm -hmm. sure, it's a problem that we can only chip away of at, course. and it's not a universal solution. But there's a lot of opportunities here in LA to look at some of these problems, not with the idea that we're coming in with a solution, but that the, with the, the idea that we might be able to make things a little bit better. And if the, with the diversity of agencies and, and nonprofits and entities that are really focused in on uh, just societal improvement, in LA, you know, sooner or later it all starts to add up and you can actually start to see some of those profound transformations. Did you guys have a hand in, you were mentioning earlier, that today was the first day that there was a bus service going up to the Los Angeles uh, National uh, Mountains? Is that, or forest rather? 
Uh, yeah, we, we didn't have anything to do with that, although oh. we, we, would, we would love to promote it. It's a, a, a pilot program that I think has funding for six months, and so we'd like to try to, to work and do what we can to help make the funding permanent. Okay. So those are some of the kinds of things that we like to, to think that we can play a role in of just you know making people aware of these opportunities to, to get involved, to donate money, to you know uh, advocate for uh, public lands. And so it's just kind of, I mentioned it because it's, it's an exciting day. And well, if no, I, yeah, it's great. I well, and I, I live off the gold line. So I was ah. like, wow. I mean, I have a car. So, but I was like, wow, that's great that that even exists. Yeah. And, you know, that we're right across the street from Union Station. Yeah. So, so for me, if I wasn't doing this today, I would have hopped on the gold line and, and, and tried it up myself. So you guys started in 2016. Yeah. Fairly new. How did Gateway to Nature start? Well, it was really a, a conversation um, among uh, a number of the entities right here in El Pueblo. So you have uh, the National Park Service that's been working with the city for quite some time. You have the, the U.S. Forest Service that's been also working for a couple of years, but more recently. And then with WNPA coming in with the ability to, to operate the, the space in the center in a public-facing way that's different from either of those, op those uh, organizations, you kind of had the, the perfect storm to, to take a, a building that had been, so th this side of the plaza that we're on here mm -hmm. was actually uh, under litigation for about 25 years. Oh, really? And as a result of that, there was no development. And so oh. it's a, a little bit challenging for us because the sort of zeitgeist of LA is when you come to El Pueblo, you go to Olvera Street, you go mm -hmm. to the other side, and the, there's a, almost like a demarcation line across the kiosk there. So as part of the effort to rehabilitate and, and to, to start using this side of the, the plaza, uh, they wanted to de develop this into some kind of, of you know, center that engaged with the public in a, a meaningful way. And so it really came about through the vision of a bunch of different organizations coming together and recognizing that there was a need for a space in downtown LA where people could come, where they could use this as a jumping off point, where we could take somebody who's, who's never been uh, into the, the public lands and you know go and do a campfire at their city park and if they they get excited by that we can tell them hey you know just one mile straight up uh, Alameda Street you'll get into the LA State Historic Park and you know the newest uh, California State Park there if you have a good time there why don't we go out to Santa Monica Mountains for a day and oh you love that well let's try this and the whole idea is not to try to give people a memory mm -hmm. that's pretty easy I mean Everybody remembers that one time they went to Disneyland, yeah. <laughs> but to really start to progressively empower people to really take advantage of the the, the, the public lands that exist for really for all of us. Mm -hmm. And what is it like? I'm just imagining that the people over on Olivera Street. Do you get a lot of people just happen and wander in thinking it's some store or whatnot? They don't know oh, what yeah, it is. Yeah, we had we had a lot of people who would come in uh, when we had the, the store open who would either be coming off of Olvera Street or we get lots of tour buses that disgorge a lot of people, uh, you know, here and they, they just, oh, it's a nice store and they wander in and they, they look around. Um, and, and that was part of what led us to the, the realization that we really need to focus on making this a destination. We, we needed to make it a place that people would actively come to as the, the, the purpose of their visit. And it's very difficult to do that when, when you're a store. I mean, there, if you think about retail, there's only a handful of places where you'd say, I'm going to drive, you know, 20 miles to go visit blank. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but when, we, when you think of it as a, an experience, uh, as a place where, you know, we can bring together the best of a whole bunch of different partners and agencies to give people that one-stop access to whether it's, you know, a city park, a state park, a national forest, a national park, you know, 
nobody really cares about which agency's running it. They care about does it offer them something. And so to have that opportunity to, to serve them through that lens, um, I think that's, uh, that's really going to be the, the, the powerful uh, momentum behind the idea of this place. And now that this is no longer a store, can you kind of walk me through, in an essence, what this new space is? Well, as you just saw, we have a, 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 a sort of a theater area where we're able to, to have mm -hmm. presentations from from people. Um, we have a library of books uh, that are on uh, topics ranging from, you know, L.A. hikes to the different parks and public lands around here to the history of the area, indigenous people. Uh, that's a, a key focus for us is the uh, is the, the history that goes all the way back. And L.A. is so multi-layered in terms of, of history that you can't really say that you know any one group has more or less right to be here mm -hmm. than any other but we can actually explore each other's stories and, and empower ourselves to tell our own story in a respectful way that embraces the people who were here before and after uh, us so that's 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 a part of our our sort of philosophy here so we have uh, an, an area for reading. We have books that people can check out and if they don't want to, to buy them. Uh, we have a map center where we can show people where good hikes are and, and, and things like that. Uh, and then we have a, a set of, of changing interpretive uh, exhibits. Uh, we're just about to move in and start displaying a parklet from the U.S. Forest Service, which is kind of a deconstructed uh, forest uh, oh, experience. Yeah? Oh, that's cool. So people can come in and they can learn about the different components of what makes up a forest in a in a, an interactive exhibit. So um, those are a few of the things that we're we're doing. Uh, we also are working on a pilot program to use 360 degree video and virtual reality to give people a taste of I what it's like. I saw that over there. Is that part yeah. of? Okay. Yeah. So you know we've got a right right now we've got a little uh, demo uh, video on Channel Islands and a demo video on the Angeles National. So kind of give them a little taste of what the experience would be yeah, like. Yeah. So if you think okay. about like you know here we are in downtown. Town LA mm -hmm. and maybe somebody's gotten here on public transportation they haven't actually been out to those places if we can use the technology to inspire them to get them thinking wow I really want to go see a Channel Island That's Fox because cool. I saw the video and mm -hmm. boy was it really cool we see it not at all as a replacement for going but as a way to get people here's the little you know, taste and, and excited and enthused mm -hmm. and another key part of that initiative is that because of the nature of that medium we can create the, those experiences in multiple languages so even if we don't mm -hmm. have staff on hand who can speak Spanish Spanish or Mandarin or Korean or whatever the language uh, needs of our audience are, we can create those experiences so that people can have in their own language the interpretation that's necessary to really understand oh, what they're that's seeing. Important. Yeah, especially in somewhere like LA. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's it's a, it's a completely underserved uh, audience. There's 41 million people who speak Spanish only in the United States, and there's almost zero interpretive uh, material that's published in Spanish. And so it, we're, we're thinking, you know, the center itself needs to be bilingual. So mm -hmm. as you'll notice, there's not a lot of text up because we're, we're gotcha. uh, the stuff that we have is our older signs. But we're in the midst of moving to where all the interpretive text is in both Spanish and English to serve the particular needs of L.A. Well, thank you so much for, you know, sharing with me the story of Gateway to Nature. One question I have to ask you, what is your favorite national park? Or to date, rather. I know there's a lot of pressure. Um, so I grew up in Montana, and so you know, part of me wants to say Glacier and Yellowstone because that was my national park experience. Uh, since coming to California, um, I worked as a docent for two years at the San Francisco National Maritime Park, mm -hmm. which is one of those tiny little out-of-the-way places just north of Fisherman's Wharf, and and fell in love with with that. Uh, but 
now now that I'm in LA, I would have said Joshua Tree until I visited Channel Islands, and that was just such a, a remarkable experience. Uh, I love the water. I love the the island aspect of it, and uh, so that that's the current reigning champion and, until probably the next one I visit. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Jim. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much. During my time at Gateway to Nature, I also had the opportunity to listen to Micah Myers, a young man in his early 30s, speak about his love for national parks and his current attempt to obtain two world records. Now, while Micah is white, he's also gay, something that isn't often represented in conjunction with our National Park Service. So Micah's made it a point of taking a photo of himself with the gay flag in some of our nation's most iconic spots as a visual testament of sorts to everyone having a place in nature. And perhaps you've seen some of these images on social media. Micah and I spoke after his presentation. So I am one of those people that is visiting the 59 now, 60. Don't get me now uh, started on the 60 thing. (laughs) But I am one of those people that, but it's been my goal to try to do it over a lifetime. Uh You're trying to visit how many exactly? 417. And are they like national properties? How would you... Describe them. What are they exactly? Uh, I say National Park Service sites. You could also call them National Parks, spelling it with a lowercase n, lowercase p, which uh, is what okay. I see a lot of rangers do. It frustrates people to all Well, I always out. get confused because, you know, I'll be like, oh, I'm seeing the 59 slash 60 National Parks, and yeah. then somebody will say the 400 or whatever. Yeah. Like, oh, wait, what? Semantics. You're doing it in... The goal is three years, right? Mm-hmm. So that boggles my mind because I've given myself, you know, okay, a whole lifetime because I'm aware that there's planes you have to take, boats you have to take. You kind of described it a little bit during your talk, but did you have a good idea of the full scope of like what you were really undertaking? Um, yes and no. I, I had an idea of doing long road trips. I didn't talk about it today, but one of my annual road trips from age 25 to 26 was nine months that I lived out of my dad's car and I did it all for $7,800. Oh, wow. And so that was a real testing ground for me to teach me how to do epic adventures affordably. And it showed me that like, you know, if you are working in St. Louis and you want to go to Yosemite, you're going to take time off work. You're going to book a hotel. You're going to book a rental car. You're going to book your flight. And You have to get to the airport to fly there. All this stuff, it's such a logistical nightmare. And then let's say you want to go to Redwoods National Park. You have to then do that all over again and the cost and the time. Whereas because I'm going from Yosemite and then driving to Redwoods, you know, I've already got the vehicle. I've already invested all this infrastructure essentially into doing stuff efficiently. And I'm saving so much hypothetical money as as if in the future I was going to take off time from work to fly back and forth. So um, in that sense, I've I've kind of made that easier. What was the second part of your question? Um, I think it was, well, more of a, did you understand though, like also how, other than the money thing, like how oh, difficult yeah, yeah, like yeah. the planes and the boats yeah. and like the things, the unexpected beyond the road? No concept. Um, I thought it would be, you know, you could drive to everything. Everything would be a natural park. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize all the historic sites that the park service runs. Um, yeah, I thought everything would be very easily accessed. I didn't realize how many planes, trains, and automobiles, you know, it's, it really it's the boats and the booking a year in advance, which is extra hard on this journey because everything changes. You know, I have mm-hmm. a schedule. It's like a giant chess game. And so it's been a logistical nightmare. But at the same time, that logistical nightmare is allowing me to see places that I 
wouldn't have a job and a budget to see otherwise. I don't have a career that allows me to earn enough money to go to these places on my vacation days. So I had to do something extraordinary to, you know, squeeze out my dime to visit these places. And it's that trade-off that allows me to do it. And that kind of opens up to the thing I really want to ask you is what in your life allows you to be able to do this? Because so many people mm-hmm. can't mm-hmm. leave their nine to five, their Monday through Friday job, or let alone even if they could for a week, they wouldn't have enough money to go, you know, to the next town over. Yeah. How can you do it? This is probably going to be the least expected answer that is the truth. Most people assume that I'm a trust fund kid. Uh, my dad was a campus pastor. That's in, unless you're Joel Osteen, you're not leaving a trust fund for your pastor's kid. Um, I have never had a job that I've made more than 50 grand a year. What I did do was when I finished grad school at age 26, I moved to Washington, D.C., and I got a job working for a boarding school. And I ended up having three part-time jobs. One was singing at the National Cathedral. One was doing administrative work for the boarding school. And then the third was living in the dorms with high school students. And so from age 26 to 30, I was living literally next door. I shared a wall with a foreign exchange student from Korea. Um, or not foreign exchange, but a student who was at the private boarding school. And so for four years, while my friends were spending $1,500, $2,000 a month on Washington, D.C. rent, I was saving that. And so really, was it not for living in a boarding school with 16-year-olds, I would not be doing this today. Because that's what allowed me to save up the chunk of money to start it. And then I work. You know, every day I'm fundraising. I'm trying to get donations online. I'm trying to put out a product so that I can raise money to finish this. So it's it's living intentionally and saving, saving your butt off. When I would go out on Friday nights, if a beer was $7, my friends had three or four. I had none because that $28 is going to go a lot further in gallons of gas than bottles of Corona. So it's about living intentionally, looking forward with a vision to the long game, the goal, and then working your butt off. I love to hear that, even though you might not love that backstory, because so many of the people that I've talked to that are like, oh, I'm doing this big journey where I'm walking across the U.S. or I'm visiting so many different things somehow they usually had saved up enough money or had a, such a well-paying job or investment that they had the money to live off. Yeah, rich years. brats. So that's what, when I saw those stories too, I thought of these rich jerk And that's what's and always hard because then I want to share these stories, but then people look, but that's not realistic. I yeah. can't achieve that. I can't get a lesson of like, how can I figure that out in my real life? I'm not a tech fund manager that made $250,000 for eight years and then could quit. Yeah. And is, can you present a Cliff Notes version of why you embarked on this journey? Um, I lost my dad to cancer when I was 19. He was 58 and he never got to retire. So I realized that the American dream of making it to 65 and then getting to do epic adventures doesn't happen for everyone. So I wanted to do something at age 30 as a way to honor him and honor the reality that I could die before 65 as well. So if my life goal is to visit all the National Park Service sites, I have to assume that I'm not guaranteed to make it to 65. And when you were talking, it made me think like, wow, maybe I should narrow my goal to not be like, oh, in my whole lifetime, because you never know what would happen, especially this age. What's retirement? Like, right? I just accepted oh I'm never going to have a retirement. I'll be living, like, working my whole life. So when you think about something like that, you're like, I don't, I don't know what that even is. Well, you know, following your dreams doesn't have to be selling all your belongings and living out of a van to visit the national parks. I talked to plenty of people whose dream is to um, be a parent or to open a small business, mm-hmm. or to have one friend who his family are farmers, and he's in a corporate job that pays him really well, 
And all he wants to do is go be a farmer for a year so he can know what it was like for his parents and grandparents. And we talk a lot about like, at what point are you going to pull the cord? Mm-hmm. Because you're making great money right now, but you've at some point you're going to be too old to be a farmer. And say, I wish. Uh, yeah. And so I think it doesn't have to be being wanderlust. It's whatever your life dreams are. Don't assume you can kick the can down the road forever. And well, if I work 20 years in this corporate job, then I can open my own consulting firm mm-hmm. or then I can open my bakery shop. Like you might not make it to that age. That's an important point. And as a, if you don't mind me saying, fellow family member who loves to travel, who loves the national parks, what you're doing is beyond just, you know, checking off this to-do list. What are you, what are you hoping to bring, you know, as far as awareness? Are you hoping to bring more awareness to the LGBTQ family visiting the national park or hoping to open the minds of society at large that, yes, we do go to national parks? Uh, Much more the latter, but even beyond national parks. I grew up in Nebraska and I was 19 years old before I met an openly gay adult. And that was only after I left Nebraska. And so my image of what it meant to be LGBT growing up was deviance and horrible people who are ruining society. And so I wanted to use this journey and the publicity I was able to wrangle up because of the world records and everybody knows the parks to put in my hometown Nebraska newspaper an image of an openly gay person that would be positive so that 10 year old Micah seeing the TV news story and being told that, you know, he's could only grow up to be a problem for society can say, well, look at that person. And if they're gay and they're setting world records and they're sharing this positive story of the parks, maybe what I've been told is not true. And so just to, to use this journey to put a positive role model out into the world that I desperately could have used as a kid and that, from what I've heard around the world, there are still people who can desperately use to be able to see that. How did Lincoln, Nebraska respond or react to that story? It was very interesting. So I, I, when I traveled through North Dakota, not a single news outlet mentioned that I was gay. When I traveled through New York State, the headline was basically like, gay, gay guy goes to gay park. <laughs> you know, it was. And so when people say, oh, things are so much better now, I say, well, it kind of depends on where you live. And so, you know, my own hometown newspaper did a story when I started this and did not mention it. And then once I made this more a part of my mission, I mentioned it and and the writer actually sent me the writing ahead of time and said, we usually don't do this, but because this is such a sensitive issue, I want to make sure I've handled it correctly. And I think that's an anecdotal evidence of, you know, the New York newspaper didn't ask me if I was okay with how they shared that I was gay. Whereas my home state one said, this is a very sensitive issue. We need to make sure we handle it correctly. So uh, I think they handled it great and that they shared it. They shared the story. I actually spoke at a church in my hometown that let me talk all about growing up as a gay pastor's son. Yeah. And so, you know, there was one church and one article and that might not be the New York headline, but it's a start. And so I think they embraced it in the way that they are able to at this point. And like, might be mixing up places, but is Lincoln, Nebraska, the Tina Brandon location as well, or no? Am I mixing up states and cities? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a arc. I'm not just saying your story is the only difference, yeah. but you know, that's what I think of when I think of Lincoln, Nebraska. Right. So yeah, it's, it's nice to see little baby steps. Yeah. I mean, I remember baby. my my first year of high school was when all the marriage amendments were happening around the country, and my state voted 70% to 30% to make marriage officially in our state constitution, one man, one woman. And I remember thinking, I have got to get out of here if I ever want to have a life because my community would not want me if they knew who I really was. 
which is a hard message for anyone. Well, I'm glad that you're out there and you're doing this. That's amazing. What park are you on right now? I just finished site number 307, Channel Islands National Park, and I will be headed tomorrow to Joshua Tree National Park as I start squiggling my way up uh, Nevada, California, Oregon, Washington to Alaska. Awesome. And where can people check out what your adventures are? They can join the journey at micahmeyer.com. That's M-I-K-A-H-M-E-Y-E-R.com. And you can find links to all my social medias there or just type in Micah Meyer to any social media you're on. And they're, uh, aside from one Mormon girl in Utah who has the Micah Meyer handle and will not give it back oh, or will not give it to me. I've asked her many times and she blocked me. Um, then if you just type my name in, you'll find me. So oh, Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. It's such a good feeling to know you're alive. It's such a happy feeling you're growing inside. And when you wake up ready to say, I think I'll make a snappy day. It's such a good feeling, a very good feeling, the feeling you know that we're friends. Thank you for joining me today on this National Park Adventure. I hope that you learned something about the national parks, or perhaps thought about something in a new way. I want to thank ABC News for making history brief, Andrea Langford for sharing her time in her book, Ranger Confidential. If you haven't read it already, please be sure to pick up a copy at your local bookstore, the library, or even Amazon. And much gratitude to Gateway to Nature, especially the center director, Jim Crawford. Thank you and best of luck to Micah Myers as he continues to travel the nation. He's 327 parks down with 90 more to go. And last but not least, a continued thanks to Holly Yabrow and Lee Roosevelt for the tunes. Today's episode was brought to us by the letter N and National Parks. Until next time, try to be a good neighbor. Oh